there we are. I found me. Thank you all again. Um, let's open to Acts chapter 6. Um, for some reason, I, I, never mind. I, my sense of humor takes off on me, and I almost said turn over in your Bibles. And it makes me think about how uh, upset people get when you say that. You think I'm all spiritual before I get up here. I'm sorry. All right. Okay. Acts chapter 6. Um, we're we're going to get to know a guy named Stephen pretty well over the next couple of weeks at least. Uh, Acts 7 is thick. There's a, um, there's a sense in, in Stephen's defense, and it's really a legal defense because... Let's just say he's having some issues with the, with the ruling authorities of the day. And uh, he, he very effectively presents Christ as Messiah. And he has upset the, the ruling authorities of the day. And really, uh, last week we talked a little bit about the formation of the group that we call deacons now, the, the ones who served and we recognized in that passage that every one of the names that was presented was Greek. They were Hellenistic Jews. And now we see that Stephen proclaims God's truth, does miracles in that same setting among the Grecian Jews. Okay? Now, we're going to find this more, and I even found a map that I can, may make some sense today. But what we find is that Stephen is just the first in the line of many. But we also see that the gospel is moving out from Jerusalem. This happens in Jerusalem, but the people that have the issues with Stephen are not Jewish. I mean, they are Jewish, but they're not Palestinian Jews. They are people from the diaspora, from the extension of the Jewish people. So let's look at verses 8 through 15, and uh, we'll read there, and we're going to visit a couple other places in the New Testament as well. And next week, we'll visit plenty in the Old Testament. So let's uh, look at Acts chapter 6, invite you to stand, and we'll read the last eight verses. Uh, kind of a neglected passage after what we look at in the first seven. All right. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Our Lord, you are faithful to us. Help us to understand your word. I thank you to, for the witness of Stephen and for the boldness in, the, in pro proclaiming the truth. 
And may we be as courageous in the power of your Spirit if that day comes for us. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Now, Stephen and Philip, we see from the previous passage, are the two gentlemen of the seven that reappear after the commissioning of these servants of the church. And they're the only two that are mentioned again. And it doesn't say much about them except that they were faithful. There you go. God is calling us, above all, to faithfulness to Him and His mission and His word. And what we find then is that it's not always safe. And I've entitled this message, one of, the, one of the hard things about preaching is finding a title for the sermon. I know that sounds goofy and you really don't care, all right? But it's one of those things that in the preaching classes they say, figure out the title. Well, I've never been good at figuring out the title of the sermon. Sometimes I'll think of the title the week before and go, by the time I get to all th through all my studying and prep on Sunday, I go, well, that's not where I was rolling with that at all. What I've started doing now in my devotional reading and my study through the week of the passage I'm preaching is if I think of a good title, I try to write it down and just go ahead and send it to Jamie so he can make the graphic. Because it's not going to matter anyway. I'm going to figure out something else. But I think the title I picked this week is, is, is The Truth Can Hurt. Now, we've all heard that statement, you know, when you get the truth about something, well, the truth hurts, right? didn't always have to hurt. But it can. And in this case, I think it hurts both the one who delivers it and the one who receives it. And I mean that in, with, with Stephen, the deliverer of the truth, in a physical sense. And in for those who receive the message in more of a spiritual sense. Because Stephen takes a risk. He's proclaiming the truth to those who do not want to hear it. And in that day, in that time, it was very dangerous. It had only been a matter of months since Christ was crucified. Right? We don't know exactly the time by the time we get this far into the book of Acts, but it had not been a long time. We see that the number of the believers, the followers of the way, or this life as it's also spoken through the book of Acts here, as probably around 20,000 people. Now, that's a lot of people. And that's a fast movement. And it even says that uh, at the end of the previous passage in verse 7, it says, great many priests became obedient to the faith. This is a threat to the status quo. And you can see that in, in, in just our reading of the passage, that they're bringing charges against Stephen about his message. We don't hear his message yet, but we hear some things about his message. In verse 8, it says, He was full of grace and power. He was doing great wonders and signs among the people. The fact that it says is full of grace is a reminder of the power of the redemption of Jesus Christ. The, the work of salvation cleanses us to ministry. 
These are great works of power. There is nothing more powerful in the world than and in, in eternity than the work of the Holy Spirit. The, wor- the words of the Spirit spoke this world into existence. I've ridden my bike a decent amount this week. That's what I do when the weather gets warm. I'm really wimpy when it gets cold. I don't do that quite as much. But on Friday evening, I was out. Uh, Nathan had baseball practice, and I went and rode my bike, and I, I found two problems. Well, three. The third one is related to the first two. There were hills, and there was wind. And the biggest problem I had with those two things was my belly. Right? You're like, okay, I'm working a little hard. As a matter of fact, I, I thought this was funny. I told Allison about it afterward. One of the segments in the, in the app I was using to track, the, the section was called hill, or house, 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 hill, tanks. And so you went up the hill, and you got to the tanks, and you could start going back downhill. You could tell that somebody had ridden that a lot and decided it was a lot of work. But here's the thing is that the world, the, the world was created and we see the hand of God in power. What is he talking about this for? Because it was all God's work that was causing my work. I was, well, except for the belly part. Anyway, go, going up the hill, I didn't make that hill. And then the wind that was blowing around. And then by the time I got back to the car and watched the kids out in the dusty baseball field, I was like, I'm glad you're out there. Not me. But... We see God's power at work through his creation. And an even greater thing is at work in us if we have trusted Christ as our Savior because the Holy Spirit is in us. And it's that power that's described right here. And what's happening with it? He was doing great wonders and signs. So the wonders and signs that they were seeing, they were seeing healings, right? In the book of Acts, we've already been there. We don't see Stephen described especially here with that. But Peter, pe- Peter had become such a celebrity that they were just trying to get into his shadow. Try to keep your head from getting big, if that's happening. So when we see God at work, we're going to see him do some great things, and we are called then to be intentionally humble. And that's what we find with Stephen. Stephen. I was reading in this, mor- uh, this morning and some follow-up things, and the name Stephen means crown. I didn't really know that. And maybe that commentator was wrong. But I doubt it. The name Stephen, being a crown, is somebody who could be exalted. But it says here he's full of grace and power, and that's the work of the Holy Spirit. And now we find that he is speaking in the synagogues, he's speaking among the people, and he's speaking from, to those who are from other areas. I got a map in, today, and I actually circled things on it because I could never get the pointer to work right. Anyway, so it says, Then someone who, some who belonged to the synagogue of the freed men, as it was called, all right, and, and of the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians and those from Cilicia and Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen. So the little circle is where Jerusalem is, right? The two big, strange-looking ovals that the paint program did for me today talk about the areas that these men were from. This was a great threat to those who were throughout the Roman Empire. 
And we see that the Jewish people had been scattered all the way through things. Simon of Cyrene was one of the people that we see in the New Testament that carried the cross of Christ, right, in the Gospels. Cyrene is that little dot on the far left of the, of the bottom circle. Alexandria, the major city of Egypt of the day, down on the coast of the Mediterranean there. And then we see a couple of places described, Cilicia and Asia. And those are up in the northern part. And right in the middle of that, we see a city called Tarsus. Anybody recognize that? It's where a fellow named Saul grew up. Saul, who we find at the end of chapter 7, was from Tarsus of Cilicia. His parents were Jewish. He was culturally Jewish, but had been raised in the diaspora, the dispersion of the Roman Empire. And he came to Jerusalem to learn, as we learn later about this fellow, at the feet of Gamaliel. We mentioned him in chapter 5, right? Gamaliel is the fellow who said, hey, if this is real, we're not going to be able to stop it anyway. He's an important figure in the New Testament in the turning the corner of understanding what was happening. And Saul was a student of his. He was a Pharisee. And we see his, his autobiography as, the, as Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and in other places as well later in the book of Acts. Spoiler alert, he turns out to be a bit of an important guy. These men, these leaders from these two areas were culturally Greek, but they were coming to hear the gospel, or they were hearing the gospel from Stephen in the synagogue in Jerusalem. It's kind of a crossroads there. You can see that that little X. That's one of the controversies actually in history of, of the land that is called modern-day Israel, is that it went right up and there was water there, and so the, people fought over it all the time. It seems like that might still be happening. Anyway, the more things change, the more they stay the same, right? So we see that this particular synagogue were Jews from a Greek culture. Stephen, having a Greek name, is speaking the truth to these individuals. He's a uh, the servant of the church to the Grecian widows, right? He's speaking to them. But he gets some challenges. They rose up and disputed with Stephen. Now, I think it's, I, I want to draw your attention to that, that Saul thing because the first time we hear about him is at the end of chapter 7 because he's the one who holds the coats in Stephen's final act, which isn't long away, by the way. These two chapters take a while, but they're about two days' worth of events, okay? Saul was likely a leader in this synagogue because he was culturally from these people. We see that even in our culture today. People, as they move around America, tend to try, try to find people from where they're from, where they go, because they just kind of think the same way. That's what's happening here. But the truth hurt They rose up and disputed with Stephen. Verse 10. We don't know what Stephen exactly was saying, except that he was proclaiming the gospel that Christ was the ultimate sacrifice for our sins, and he rose from the dead after his crucifixion. That was enough to offend all of them. 
And they're trying to get him to be quiet. They're trying to shut his mouth. They could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. This is very important. And again, it's a fulfillment of a, play, a couple of places in the Gospels. I've got uh, two passages here. You can write them down if you want to. Matthew chapter 10, verses 16 through 25. Actually, it's 16 to the end of that chapter, I think, in Matthew chapter 10. But there's also Luke. And I want to go to Luke because Luke is believed to have written both the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. Luke chapter 21. I want to go there right now. And we can see that this see this fulfillment happening in this moment. Write it down. Verses 12 through 18. Actually, I've got 10 through 18, 19 there. It goes there. Uh, then he said to the nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and various places, famines and pestilences. And there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to, to the synagogues and prisons. And you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. Those are the words of Jesus. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom, which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you will be, they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. There's a lot happening in that passage in the words from our Savior. Okay, I might give away a little bit of my eschatology on this here to the beliefs about the end times. But the, if you read through the New Testament, there's a, an expectation of the disciples that Christ would return in their lifetime. What they didn't know was how many people were actually in the world. Okay. When Christ commissions the disciples, he says to go to the ends of the earth. Well, they, they only saw their little you know, spot there, maybe the end of the Roman Empire you know, in Spain and places like that. They don't realize there's continents that still need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. The expectation of Christ's return has been imminent since the days of the New Testaments. There is no way for us to know when that day and moment will arrive. Only the Father, as even Jesus said then, would know. It's, a lot of people want to get their calendars out, and they get really mad at me because I won't even look at them. You just, you just don't know. And there's a lot of videos, and I, oh man, I followed a couple of YouTube rabbit holes a few months ago. There are some people who say some very risky things about the end times. But the fact is, is that every nation rises up against every nation at some point. I'm not, maybe generalities there. But these things have been happening throughout history. There will be great earthquakes, and there will be famines and pestilences in verse 11. And there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. All of these things have been happening the whole time. What does that tell us about what we need to believe about Jesus? We need to be ready right now. This is why the message of the gospel is so important at this moment. is because we don't know when our last day will be. We just don't. We need to be proclaiming the truth of the gospel. And you can get your calendars out and start talking about how these different seven time signs and how they all work together. Okay, have fun. We got work to do in telling people about how to be ready for it when it happens. 
That's what weeks like this are about. Anyway, Jesus proclaimed these words just a few weeks, really, before his, uh, before his death. And now we see them come to fulfillment very early in the life of the new, what would be the, the, the New Testament. And he says, you're not going to get a chance to prepare. You need to trust me for your words. One of the things that we talk about in Acts chapter 6 is what were the apostles doing in proclaiming the word? There's speculation that they were actually writing down the accounts that Jesus, of Jesus' life and ministry. And even now, as we see this account from Stephen, if Paul was in the room when it happened, that would make a lot of sense if Luke was following him around to write down what was said. Because if you look at chapter 7, you see a lot of Pauline theology. You see about how, how Stephen, guys like Stephen, might have helped form times forward in the New Testament. Anyway, there's going to be persecution. There's going to be times. You're going to have to be ready. Stephen thought things were great. He had a job to do. They have made him a servant of the church. And now he went and did what he was supposed to. And he gets arrested and drawn before them, drawn before them the councils. And these were the Greek Jews. These were supposed to be the tolerant ones. So much for that theory. They could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Again, that's verse 10, but that's a fulfillment of passages like Matthew chapter 10, like Luke chapter 21. And it also tells us ahead of time of passages, one of my favorite passages in the New Testament. I think I even used it in my very first message in this pulpit when we came in, in view of a call. And that is 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. I should have marked it. The pages get thinner at the end. All right. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. We read verse 15 and I think a lot of times forget verse 16 because we get pretty obnoxious sometimes when we share our faith. We need to do it with gentleness and respect, but realize that when we present that message, it's going to make some people upset. And I think that's the thing that we as Americans kind of chicken out with the quickest. We don't want, we don't want people to be upset with us for that. We want them to be upset with us about our political views or, or something else. The truth of the gospel is that you are fearfully and wonderfully made, yet you are a sinner. I am a sinner. That's a royal you there. I need a Savior. Without Christ, I am wretched and depraved, and I'm bound to perish. Now, that terminology matters, and we look like we see that word pop up in here. What are the charges? There's some irony in their charges in verse 11. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard them speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. This verse brings this, this crew into a moment of personal judgment. 
Remember, these are Pharisees. These are people who know the law of Moses. And one of the things that we find in Exodus chapter 20, verse 16, it says, we should not bear false witness against one another. We shouldn't lie. But we see here, if Paul is the witness by which this story is bound, he's admitting his own sin. And as he should. Then he, they secretly instigated men who said, they made a conspiracy, guys. That's, that's the definition of a conspiracy, by the way. Secretly instigating things that are not true. We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. Well, we're going to find out what he has to say about Moses next time. He actually has some pretty good things to say about Moses. And they stirred up people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council, and they set up false witnesses again. This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. They had to wrangle together people to bring a negative witness against this guy. This is mob rule at its best. They're drawing together people, getting them emotionally stirred up so that when they come to this place, they, you, you have the, you know, the cheers of, you know, that, that we heard earlier with Jesus, crucify him, crucify him. They're drawing the mob together against this guy because he has hurt them and in their interpretation of the truth. They don't want to know the truth. And that is John 14, 6. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except by me, except through me. This man never speaks to see, speak words, uh, try again. This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. What is the worst kind of lie? We need to change it just a little bit. Why? Because that is what breeds deception in the person's mind. Jesus had said that you destroy this temple and in three days it will rise. He was not speaking of the temple in Jerusalem. He was speaking of his own body. But they didn't understand that. They thought that to be blasphemous. It's not blasphemous if it's the truth. Now that's what they're dealing with, is the truth. And that he would change the customs that Moses delivered to us. Now, I think that's more of the speculative nature of things. We find, we're going to find out more about that here in chapter 7. But Stephen was very faithful to the truth of the law. And the truth of the, of the prophets and the history of the world and the history of the Jewish people. And so now they come to this place. This is the arrest, okay? This is not the time of judgment. This is the, when they bring him before the council with the charges that are there. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. 
There's a couple of different places where this was reflected in the, in the um, Old Testament. And one of the places is in that same passage when Moses, in, in Exodus chapter 20, 21, 22, when Moses comes down from the, uh, hello, um, when Moses comes down from, the, from Mount Sinai, what happens? He is glowing, right? They can't look at him. They have to, he has to cover his face because he's been in the presence of God. There's a sense of peace here. We also see that in some of the prophecies about uh, some of the, the, the different characters like Samson and his, the things that, that come before him, that angels were terrifying beings, are terrifying beings, but they're also beings of peace. And so in this place, they, they didn't understand what they were seeing, but they saw that there was something different about this guy. And when you are obedient to God and what he wants you to do, and you speak his truth, and you walk in his grace, it says in verse 8, full of grace and power, his power will work through you. And it will affect your environments. And so Stephen now is seized, it says it here, he's arrested and brought before these people. Now he is going to lay claim to the truth. And we're going to see that they're going to understand and say, oh, okay, we understand your points. You can go now, just carry on. No. In the temporary nature, things don't end well for Stephen. In the eternal nature, things have never been better. The question is, are we going to trust God at his word if we come to a place where we are challenged like this to still hold to the truth that is before us? In our country, very seldom do people come to this point. Throughout the world, it's pretty common. People die for their faith frequently. Let's, on a day where we remember the birth of our nation, a weekend, it's not quite the fourth, but it is the second. Anyway, well, I'm going to end it there. When we remember the freedom we have, let's not forget the reason we have it. That is to proclaim the gospel. Our memory verse, I didn't put this in the thing, it, there, it's, uh, it's in the bulletin. Galatians chapter 5, verse 13. It's about freedom, but it's not necessarily the freedom that we talk about as Americans. It's not the reason that we are called to be free as Americans. Galatians 5 is pretty awesome. We were in Galatians last year, this time last year. Verse 13 says, For you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Let's go back to verse 1. It says, For freedom Christ has set us free, and stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Who wrote this down? The Apostle Paul who was standing witness likely to this moment, the Apostle Paul. 
before he was Paul. Well, it's a little speculation, but I don't think it's a far leap. <laughs> Real freedom has everything to do with the gospel. It's the fulfillment that Christ has given us in his life through the law. He lived a perfect, sinless life. By the book, he should not have died. He was the perfect, spotless sacrifice for our sins. He was the only one worthy to take the penalty for our sins. And now, through his death, the great exchange happens. His righteousness is imputed. And there's not a good word that's better than that, but it goes all in through you. Every fiber of your being is made righteous when you trust in Him as your Savior. His righteousness is in you. He has taken your sin on the cross. Paid in full. So now we have freedom from the penalty of the law in order to walk in newness of life in His name. We can get caught up in a lot of peripheral rules with that. But the fact is, is that real freedom only comes in Christ. That's where we find forgiveness. That's where we find life in his name. And that's the life that Stephen proclaims here. That's, that's why we see this happen to him in chapters 6 and 7 in the book of Acts. As he is bold enough to say, guys, you've missed the point. He gets a little more detailed than that. We're going to be here in chapter 7 at least a couple of weeks because it's lengthy. It's pretty much an overview of the Old Testament. If you want to know what's going on in the Old Testament, Acts 7 is a good place to go. There's a lot going on there. The question is, which side of the, uh, of the desk are you going to be on? Are you going to be... Where Stephen is, loyal to the king of kings and the Lord of lords? Or are we going to be caught in the legalism that these Pharisees were? Are we going to be faithful in proclaiming the glory of Jesus? It's costly. And it might hurt a little bit. But the eternal reward is worth all of it. Let's pray. Lord, you are faithful and you are good to us. I thank you for how you draw us together to hear your word, to learn your word. Help us, God, today to understand the price that is paid and the risk we take in this life to be faithful to you. Help us to be bold in our obedience and following you. And help us to be encouraged through men like Stephen. We thank you for loving us and help us to follow you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together.